0: Who in the world do you think you are? What on earth do you think you are doing? This is essentially how the national leaders of Israel confronted Jesus in the temple courts three days before his crucifixion. The day before, on Sunday afternoon, you remember Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem to the roar of the crowds. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had prophesied, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your King comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." In direct fulfillment of that prophecy, Jesus Christ rode into the, through the gates of Jerusalem and into the city. He was fulfilling as well the prophecy of Daniel that 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree for Israel to return from captivity to the promised land, her Messiah would come and present himself to the people of Israel. So the people are ecstatic. They are shouting messianic phrases from the psalter and laying down their cloaks before the donkey. The Passover pilgrims are escorting Jesus into the holy city with exuberant celebration. But in the midst of all of this noise and excitement and joy, Jesus weeps. He stops and looks over the city and He weeps. Jerusalem was a tomb for prophets, and Jesus knew it. He knew to the core of his being that the joy of the pilgrims on this day would be short-lived. Coming into the city of Jerusalem on that Sunday, Jesus went to the temple and he looked around and surveyed the situation, and then he went back to Bethany, two miles outside of the city, and he spent the night there at Lazarus' home. On Monday, Jesus re-entered the city. We don't have all of this detail in the Gospel of Luke, but as we put the Gospels together, on that day, Monday, He came back to Jerusalem. And He returned to the temple area. This was a defiant act on Jesus' part. Remember, there is a price on His head. And the Sadducean sect has a firm grip and absolute control, almost, over what happens in the temple area. Outside of Rome, to whom they answered, these Sadducees controlled the temple. And the high priest, Ananias, had a very firm grip on what took place there. More on that in a moment. But all of these people wanted Jesus dead. And he walks into their temple, as they would see it, onto their turf, and stands and teaches and lays claim to his temple. A little background is necessary for us as we consider this courageous act on Jesus' part. But God's law revealed to Moses two responsibilities for Passover pilgrims as they came into Jerusalem at this time. One was the men over 20 needed to pay a temple tax. You had to pay exactly a half shekel and that half shekel had to be in the currency that was accepted there at the temple now in that day things were very different as far as coinage goes you might have in your money pouch coins from a number of different places Egyptian Syrian Tyrian Greek coins Roman coins and the people of that day of course did not handle nearly the money that we handle and so it was very possible that you would not have exactly a half shekel and so money needed to be exchanged. The law of God even necessitated this, that money would be exchanged so that you had exactly a half shekel paid in a Tyrian coinage or Galilean coinage. Second requirement was that you brought an animal that was without defect. This again is God's requirement. If you're traveling from any distance, remember they don't put the lamb in the trunk of a car and haul it to Jerusalem. They're walking, and many of them, over weeks of time from Galilee to descend upon Jerusalem. If you bring a lamb with you that far, you can guarantee that lamb's going to get nicked somewhere or become hobbled in some way and your animals of sacrifice will probably not be accepted at the temple as without defect. Now part of the problem in all of this is that those who controlled the temple ran the show and they were doing so to line their own pockets. They were the ones who determined if your sacrificial animal was without defect. And they were the ones that controlled the exchange of coinage so that they always brought in a little bit more money than was really necessary. And Ananias himself, the high priest, had control over all of these money changers and all of these merchants who had set up their tables and their wares right in the court of the Gentiles. Think of the temple area, and when the Bible refers to temple, it's usually referring to the entire area. Think of a football field, that's 100 yards, and then go the other direction and go 50 yards longer. So about 150 yards by 100 yards, that's the temple. Now the building, the structure itself at the center of that area was, of course, much smaller. But all around this temple are these expansive stone courts, this pavement. There are porches there that are b- built. I won't go into all the detail of, this, of the setting, but there's this, these, these massive courtyards. And in the courtyard of the Gentiles, the most exterior of the courtyards where Gentiles were permitted, Ananias and the Sadducean sect and all of those that had control of the temple had set up their wares exchanging money and selling proper sacrificial animals. Wine is being sold, part of the sacrifices. Salt is being sold. Oil is being sold, doves, lambs, goats, money exchange. You have basically a bazaar. You have a market that is set up in the Gentile court. And Jesus enters this temple and takes stock of what is taking place. And his heart is overwhelmed with this realization. The worship of God is being exploited for profit. His heart was filled with righteous anger. And we read in Luke chapter 19 and verse 45, Then, in this context, he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. Luke's account is very brief, adding Matthew and Mark's reports. We know that Jesus grabbed hold of tables, one after another, and turned them over. Coins went spilling onto the pavement. Sheep and goats were scurrying and dove cages crashing to the ground. And money changers and salesmen were sent running out of the temple area. This lunatic had come into the temple. He's chasing everybody out and they go running. Perhaps his disciples helped him in this event. We have no information on how he pulled this off. And perhaps the salesmen... And the money changers were afraid that the crowds would soon join Jesus in this resistance. There had to be a sense of guilt on their part that what they were doing was wrong. Somehow, in some way, Jesus pulls this off and he clears this massive court, sending everybody running with their wares. Why does he do this? Who does he think he is? Well, at the core of Jesus' being, he knows this is his house. And he says, not here. Get it out. Remember, even as a young boy, in Luke 2, in verse 19, he said, he spoke of the temple as my Father's house. And so he runs them out and cleans the temple. Verse 46, saying, it is written... My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. There's a positive and negative statement here. Positively, he quotes Isaiah 56 and verse 7. Isaiah had a glorious prophecy there. He thought of a day, he looked ahead to a day when the temple area would be a place of such fervent worship, so magnifying the glories of God that the nations of the earth would come. It would be magnetic. It would draw them from all of the nations to the place where the worship of God was pure and real. My place is to be a place of prayer for the nations. Negatively, he quotes from Jeremiah 7 11, a scathing sermon in which Jeremiah chides the leadership of Israel with infidelity to God. And he says of the temple area, You have made this temple. A den, a cave of robbers. They know what Jesus is saying when he stands up and says this. This is to be a place of prayer. This is to be a place where people meet God. And it's become a cave of robbers. This very place has become a noisy market at which robbers line up their tables to systematically victimize pilgrims. Get it out of my house, says Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Is this the Jesus that the church of Jesus proclaims? This is a Christ. If I would put one word on this, there would be a number of options. Zeal, holiness, courage, righteous anger. But I think there's another word that is very fitting I'd like to just bring before us today. This is, in Jesus' spirit, this is meekness. What is happening is he grabs tables and runs people out and giving all of this energy, this is meekness. You say, now wait a minute, that's not how I define meekness, and we don't in this culture at all. Meekness to us is weakness and timidity, something along those lines. This is meekness. What is meekness according to a biblical perspective? It is controlling power to the highest good of others while forgetting self. Controlling power to the highest good of others while forgetting self. Do you remember the most meek man on earth? Who was it? What did the Bible say? That's Moses. Meek? This man leads two million plus people. This man was a great leader in Pharaoh's army according to history. Moses, a meek man who meets with God, a man who can bring water out of the rock. Meekness, its think of it in light of Moses. It is power under control to the highest good of others, forgetting self. Meekness is Moses standing there before God as God says to him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will destroy these people. And Moses stands and argues with God, power under control, self-forgetful, and labors in behalf of the nation and says, spare the nation. That is meekness. We might illustrate it this way. Consider, Just take a pro soccer player. And he comes and goes to a park, and there's some kids playing soccer out in the park, and he begins to play with them. He plays so that everybody has fun, everybody's energetic and enthusiastic, and they have the best time they've ever had in their life playing soccer. But what has this pro soccer player done? Has he stood around and said, Oh, I'm too good for this? I'm going to play with these kids. I'm a pro soccer player. That's pride. No, he's brought his power, the ability to play soccer way above their ability, under control. And he's done so in a self-forgetting way, not considering that he's a pro soccer player, and this is way below him. He uses his abilities to help these kids play. And you know what? Some of them are even cocky, and some of them are causing trouble. And what does he do? He just goes right on playing without showing them who he is. That's meekness. And that is Jesus Christ here. He forgets himself. He keeps his power under control and he serves the purposes of others by clearing the temple courts for the worship of God. I'm gonna park here for a moment. I give you this warning. We park from time to time but this is a long parking spot. I think it's important that we think through this. We think of the spirit of Jesus. I'd like us to consider secondly by application Jesus' goal. What is Jesus' goal here? My house will be a house of prayer. The worship service provided by the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to help people meet God. This causes me to tremble because on this side of the cross, that is what a local church is supposed to do. This is to be a place where people meet with God. I'd like us to turn to Ephesians 2 and verse 19. If you will, Ephesians 2 And verse 19, the Apostle Paul speaking to believers in Christ at Ephesus says to these Gentile converts, Ephesians 2.19, consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building, what building? God's household, that's you. You are the members of God's household. This whole building, verse 21, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That means that we are to be a household of prayer. The worship of Eden Baptist Church is supposed to help people meet with God. This will not be equally true, obviously, of every church gathering. I think tonight is a very good illustration of that. The intention of our gathering tonight to honor recent graduates and to look at the last six months of our church ministry is for that purpose. But when we gather here to worship the Lord on a weekly basis, we gather here to meet with God in a unique way to see Him. And that is why the elements of our worship service are put together in the way that we are. We start off, and none of these things are necessary every single week exactly or equally, but we gather here and we have a call to worship. That means you've got your nose in a magazine. It means you've got your nose in the bulletin. It means you've been trying to get little kids to church this day. It means that you're hurried and hassled and there's problems in your life and there's all kinds of things that are screaming at you to look away from Christ. We come together and we remember as we stand together in the Lord's presence, we are here to meet with God. And we have readings of Scripture. That is not ritualistic reading. The readings of Scripture, occasionally the readings of a confession, the readings of a prayer, as we had a couple of weeks ago, these readings are not thrown out there to waste time. They are thrown out there for us to consider God. There is prayer. When we pray, where is your mind? Where are you thinking? To what are you looking? As we gather as a church on the Lord's day to pray, pray, there is something unique about that prayer. When we gather to give to the Lord, we can write a check to God and put it in the mail, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but as we gather together as God's people to give, we do so to focus on God. The preaching and teaching of the worship of God's people. The goal is to meet with God. To study His Word, line upon line, word by word, phrase by phrase, and to know who God is. We fall very far short of that goal every time we meet. But I can say that my hope and my dream and my purpose, and I know that is the case of those who are in leadership in this church, our desire is that when people come to this church, they will think about God. For better or for worse, His name is to be lifted up. Now there's a lot of churches out there I don't mean to throw rocks unnecessarily at any church, but I want to park for a minute, and I think we should think. There's a lot of churches out there. There are dead ritual churches, be it that low church or high church. There's a lot of dead ritual in both, in many of them. There's a lifeless routine that goes on where there's no fresh encounter with God. So often the gathering of low churches, and by that I just mean... uh, cultural, social type of rallies. There's a gathering together to do the things that we always do, but there's really no fresh vision of God. We're not put in His presence. We don't see His face. There's others that are pure ritual performance. Everything's beautiful. Everything's fresh. Um, nicely put together is what I mean but it's just ritual. It's just readings, it's just listening to music, it's looking perhaps through stained glass window, but there's no encounter with God. Now obviously that has something to do with the heart and the individual and every individual in such churches need to meet with the Lord. They have a responsibility. But there's so many churches where there's just dead ritual. Perhaps the greatest challenge today by far comes from those that we refer to as market driven churches. The goal of the market driven church is to tailor the meetings of the church so that they appeal to unbelievers. And there's a dirty little secret in it all they appeal to Christians too. They're giving us what we want. The justification is that we get more people. And when we get more people to come because we give people what they want, more people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that sounds very noble on the face of things, and we should obviously want as many people to hear the gospel as we'll hear the gospel. But the mission of Christ's church is not to structure its worship so that sinners feel comfortable and want to come to church. What the mainstream wants is humor. What the mainstream wants is entertainment. What the mainstream wants in this culture is to feel good about themselves. And when the church caters its message to appease such cravings, something is lost. It's called a vision of God. Show me the people in Scripture who saw God, and what you'll be seeing mostly is the top of their head, because their face is buried in the ground. I don't see a lot of people who met God in the scriptures who felt very good about themselves. Now a church can go in the wrong direction and just seek to beat people up. That's not the right answer. But we need to see God, at times a God of comfort and love and compassion and grace, but always at other times balanced with a a God who is a God of judgment, a God of severity. God of holiness we need to come into his presence think about this is our job to exalt a savior with whom unbelievers are comfortable is it not the case that our job is to exalt the Savior with whom unbelievers are naturally alienated our job is to magnify the splendor of God in the eyes of those who love darkness rather than light Now, If that results in an unbeliever embracing Christ, we rejoice with the angels of heaven and something truly unique has taken place. But the church is not, in the final analysis, a gathering point for the lost. It is the church. The called-out assembly of believers in Jesus Christ. The church is the place where God's people gather to meet with God. We gather to see Jesus in all of His fullness, not a merely positive, safe Jesus, an emasculated Christ fitted to the desires of the market. I read, and therefore I know wherever I speak. But I also do a little investigative work from time to time. I was in a church not so long ago were the center of the service and the thing that I remember more than anything else was the 15-minute big-screen presentation trying to get the church to buy a ticket to go to Branson, Missouri. That was the center of the service. That was the thing you remember. There were testimonials. There were ad agents up there on the stage saying how you got to go to Branson, Missouri. One guy was, I don't know, brought in or a member of the church, but he had worked there. You would have thought the guy was the Apostle Paul, as he told us all what it was like to work at Branson. I've been to a church where I wasn't quite sure if I was watching Good Morning America, though I'm not really sure if I ever have watched that. I kind of think I know what it's like. The announcements, this long, rambling dialogue between several people on the front, that was the center of it all, was what we do as a church during the week. Let's get on board. Conservative Baptist Church. The morning worship service was dominated by a report on the Christian school's basketball tourney victory. Another church, guy patted up and dressed up like Arnold Schwarzenegger, doing a skit right before the sermon. I don't know how many people were disappointed, and I've said before, as I told the story, I laughed, it was funny. But what wasn't funny is that I was sitting there as a pastor who doesn't get to hear too many people preach live. And I had a Bible in my lap. And in that church of five, 600 people, I didn't see another Bible, including that of the preacher. And the reason being, nobody needed one. It's an evangelical church with a reputation for winning people to Christ, and I wanted to see it. All I remember is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, they pump people up. I watched another church service as the members of the band took their turns walking to center stage where there was a spotlight and doing a solo part on their whatever. Each one taking their turn to walk to the center stage in the spotlight and to do their little time to the dancing and clapping of the assembly. And I wasn't quite sure where I was. I was in a conference in the Twin Cities that was dealing with sex. It was a tremendous conference. I thought how ironic that as we get ready to contemplate the glories of God concerning the topic of sex, here is a woman standing at the front of the stage gyrating to the gyrating beat. It was purely sexual. In its connotations, though I'm sure it never crossed her mind. It crossed mine. As a young preacher leading a fledgling church here, I remember reading, and I've quoted it often, from a church guru who was talking to my spirit and telling me how to preach, and he said this limit your preaching to roughly 20 minutes because boomers don't have too much time to spare. And don't forget to keep your messages light. Don't forget to keep your messages light and informal. Liberally sprinkling, sprinkling them with humor and personal antidotes. I looked at this book and said, 20 minutes. And that 20 minutes is to be light. And those 20 minutes of light are to be filled with humor and stories. And I'd long ago said it, but I said it again. No way. Not in this church, not here. Yes, the church, the evangelical church in our land is making unbelievers quite comfortable. But where are the churches where a person who is alienated from Christ can go to tremble? If you're alienated from Jesus, you ought to tremble in the face of Christ. Where are the churches where people can meet with God Where are the churches where the readings of Scripture have a God who is high and lifted up? Not merely the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I shouldn't use the word meekness, should I? I'm using it culturally. Not merely the gentleness and the comfort of Christ, but where is the Jesus in the readings of Scripture who is the Jesus of Revelation chapter 19, riding a white horse with sword drawn? Where is he? We need both because he is both where is the singing where the lyrics are God exalting the music is non-distractive as far as possible and the presentation does not spotlight people where is the preaching today the preaching where people can meet God Preachers today are largely in the market driven church allowing people to determine what they will and what they will not say. May it be said here, that is evil. It's just flat wicked. Every preacher needs to consider his audience, he needs to speak in their language. He needs to be gentle at places and thoughtful about how he says things. There are some topics on which he must exercise extreme patience for a long time. But there is no preacher of God's word who has any business letting people determine what he says. The preacher of God's word is to say what God says. He's to preach the whole counsel of God lest he become a false prophet who simply scratches itching ears. This church is to be a church where people meet God. Now this is a long parking project, I realize. But I believe in this context, it's a good line of application and I need you. I need this church, I need you as a body of people. We need each other in this project because it's getting more and more lonely. We need to lift up the word of God to preach the whole thing. And you know what? You need patience and endurance to do that. To this point in time, we have made it almost through 19 chapters of the Gospel of Luke and we have read every word and considered every verse in this book. You can't that if you're marketing to the masses. Because if you haven't noticed, the Jesus in this book is very offensive at times. But I believe you're here as I am here because I want to know the true Jesus, not the one that is remade into the image of our day. I want to know the real man. And knowing that real man leads us to glory. Leads us to be transformed and leads us to understand what we need to know to live for God. We don't spend our time throwing rocks. We don't apologize for the message of God's word. And while I am ever always watchful, more than you would ever know, 20 minutes just isn't going to happen around here. Endure. Persist. Well, there's Jesus. There's the real Jesus. Standing there in the temple courts, panting. I have no question in my mind that there is sweat running down his face. That he is gasping for air as he has turned over these Tables and chase these people out through this court area. They're now cleared, the courts. The tables and the merchandise are gone. No longer does the temple sound like a casino or a barnyard. A serene hush prevails. And it is now time for Jesus to hold court in His house. But as He does, the opposition intensifies. Verse 47, "...every day He was teaching at the temple." But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Jesus only taught here on Monday and then on the following day, so Luke is probably referring to Jesus' pattern as he teaches at the temple in his many visits or several visits through his ministry to Jerusalem. But at any rate, he now gathers the crowd and he teaches. These are the last two days of glory for this place. And preaching publicly to gathered crowds in the temple area requires, as I mentioned, tremendous courage. Because you see here in verse 47 that the chief priests, teachers of the law, the leaders among the people, or the elders, are trying to kill him. The most powerful leaders in Israel want Jesus dead. Cleansing the temple courts and teaching there publicly is nothing less than an act of defiance on Jesus' part. But as we noted last week, Jesus' protection is not His own army. It is not even a sword. His wall of protection is what? It's the people. And so, verse 48, yet they could not find any way to do it. They couldn't find any way to kill Him because all the people hung on His words. The most powerful leaders of Israel want Him dead, but it's the people that are in the way. Jesus is so popular with the crowds, the people are so enamored with his teaching, that the rabbis are afraid to seize Jesus, lest the people harm them. And the leaders desperately want him dead, but can devise no successful plan of action. For now, they're going to have to try to discredit Jesus. So, as we carry forward today and as we look, Lord willing, to, to the uh, weeks to come, we will be considering the attacks upon Jesus from theological and political and authority areas, levels, as the opponents of Jesus confront him here, unable to haul him off to have him executed. That Monday night, they plot their strategy because Jesus again leaves the city. Heads back to Bethany where he rests again. The leaders are waiting for him on Tuesday morning. That is verse 1 of chapter 20. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, that one day is Tuesday, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, they said, by what authority you are doing these things? Who gave you this authority? These are the bigwigs of the nation. These aren't some Pharisees in Galilee. These are the big players. And they come right up to Jesus and said, whose authority? That was a huge question. Now, first of all, it's considered the these things. What do they mean when they say these things? It's probably referring to his triumphal entry on Sunday, permitting the, the adoration of the crowd, their cheering and celebration of his presentation. The hosannas of the children in the temple courts, reading these things from the other gospel writers. The cleansing of the temple. Remember who's in charge of the temple. This belongs to the Sadducees. This is Ananias' home as far as they're concerned. Who gives you the right to come in here and turn over tables and run out the high priest people? What else could we add to it? He's teaching in the temple courts. You can't teach in Israel without authority, without someone giving you that authority. He is forgiving sins. They've heard the stories of this. In fact, as John says, he's bringing crippled and blind people into the temple. They're not allowed into the temple area. He's bringing them in and giving them new legs and new eyes. Who do you think you are? What are you doing here? They're angry. So much of Jesus' opposition has been on the outside of Jerusalem, but now he faces, he comes face to face with the leaders of Israel on what they perceive to be their turf. Jesus looks them in the eye and says, this is my turf. This is my Father's temple. What authority! In Israel at this time, this was the fundamental question of any rabbi. No rabbi could teach in Israel without being granted authority. And once ordained to teach, a rabbi's constant concern was to prove that what he taught was sacred tradition, handed down to him by other authorities. Edersheim writes this, The highest honor of a scholar was that he was like a well-plastered cistern from which not a drop had leaked of what what had been poured into it. The ultimate appeal in cases of discussion was always to some great authority. To decide differently from authority was either, the, was either to be ignorant or it was the outcome of daring rebellion. No one has given Jesus his authority. Where do you come off teaching in our temple, they say to him. If truth were known, they would say that his authority came from Satan. But their primary hope here is to demonstrate to the people this rabbi has no authorization. He's to be dismissed. Verse 3, he replied to them, I tell, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Jesus is willing to answer their question. Note that. He's not saying, I refuse to answer your question. He's just saying, you show me that you're fair in this. You answer my question, I will answer your question. This is a common rabbinical tactic. Is John's baptism from heaven or from men? In other words, does John the Baptist have his authority from God or from man? Well, who commissioned John the Baptist? Nobody. This is an amazing use of logic. And Jesus has devastated them. Because you would have to be the most ignorant dolt in Palestine at this time to not know who John the Baptist was. John was a famous martyr and the people revered him. And you can be sure the leadership knew that John adamantly said that Jesus was from God. So Jesus, as Daryl Bock puts it raises the Baptist ghost to force his enemies to weigh in on John's message as well this really is the very issue that they're asking well John told you do you agree with John or do you not agree with John does his authority come from heaven or does it come from man if John was an authentic prophet then Jesus is Messiah and they ought to listen to what Jesus says if John was not a true prophet then let them say so. You get a good sense of the character of these men when you look at verses 5 and 6. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So Jesus once again uses the crowd for his protection. These men do not believe that John the Baptist was from heaven, that his authority came from heaven. They don't believe that. But they fear the people. We see them there in their tight huddle weighing their answer. They are politicians concerned with the polls. The truth does not even factor into their thinking. By the way, we can just say in sideline here, if you are asked to decide between right and wrong, there's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's. Their problem is they are weighing the answer by looking around rather than looking up. All these characters can do is look around. Rather than set the people straight and tell them John was a false prophet, they try to evade Jesus' question. If we say from men, all the people will stone us. That's what you do to someone who doesn't recognize a true prophet in that day. What we have witnessed here, well, let me finish this with verse 7. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. That is absolutely laughable. that, That could, if we got it in the right sense, really put us on the floor rolling around in laughter. We don't know. We're the authority brokers in the land. You ask us anything about anything, and we can quote 15 rabbis about anything, and you know what? We're also the brainy guys that can quote the whole Old Testament. But we don't know. This is unreal. What we have witnessed is a knockout punch by Jesus. He wasted these guys, as we say. He did. He put them in a spot where they had no option. They either die or they acknowledge he's Messiah. If you're on a balance beam and you fall off, you want to fall on one side or the other, right? You fall off on the one side, you stand for what you believe and you're a martyr. You fall off on the other side and you get in line with the crowd and you submit to Jesus Christ. These guys jump off the balance beam and land squarely right on top of it. We don't know, really pretty rotten solution. They couldn't even decide if John was a true prophet. One of the greatest prophets in Israeli history and they don't know what side he's on. Satan or God's. So Jesus said to them in verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You are not willing to die for your answer. I'm not going to die today for mine. They knew what Jesus would say. They knew what he believed about his authority. He said it over and over again through his ministry and demonstrated it over and over again through his ministry. Jesus taught time and again that his authority came from God. All they needed to do was listen to John the Baptist. If they weren't willing to land on him, then what is the difference if they land on Jesus? And what right do you then have to make me answer your question? You won't answer mine. As one commentator puts it, Jesus refused to give more light to those who refused to accept the light they had. So they scurry away to lick their wounds, thoroughly discredited and fuming at Jesus. Time is short. They're going to hit him hard with more questions this day, but time is running out. Who you think you are? What on earth do you think you're doing? With his actions and words, Jesus claimed that he was the Son of God. Jesus is none other than the Sovereign Lord of all. And I believe that that is a message that every heart needs to hear. Those who are troubled, those who are victimized, those who are tender and Weak in their demeanor, those who come into a church longing for comfort, what you need to hear is the most comforting words of all that Jesus Christ is Lord. He defeated death. He conquered the grave. This is who he is. That is a word of comfort. Yes, it's a word of fear. Do you want to be in the position of these religious leaders, landing squarely on the beam in the wrong sense of the word? No, Jesus calls for a decision. He calls for a person to say, I'm either with him or I'm not with him. But Jesus, let's get this straight, has absolute authority. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, he will later say, All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. What does he therefore say? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel Go to people of other religious persuasions and tell them that they must receive me as their savior. Why? Because we're so obnoxious to think we're the only ones that are right? No, because all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. The authority is not us. The perspective is not ours. It's his. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Jesus is absolute authority over his church. We read that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, that he might have the supremacy over all things. He is the authoritative Christ. This means that what we preach and what we teach, it means that in our worship and our priorities as a church, in the manner of life, that we lead as the people of God, Jesus Christ is the head. He is the authority. The church is not about what we decide that we want it to become. And your life is not about what you want it to be. The authority for our church and for our lives is none other than Jesus Christ. And I think if you're rightly reconciled with Him, That's a joyful thought. I know something about sin. We all do, don't we? When we're walking in sin and we're mired in that mud and we hear that Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord of all, what does it strike in our heart? Conviction. It doesn't always feel very good. But that's God's grace to call you out of your sin and point you to what is right. That's His mercy to say, He is Lord. You must come to Him. And the good news is He forgives those who repent. And how does that strike you when you are alienated from God and don't want His forgiveness? To hear that Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord is offensive. Do we see Jesus coming here to the temple and saying, Now, disciples, let me talk here just before we walk into the temple area. We need to talk about how to market our message to the leaders of the temple. They're unsaved, you know. They need the gospel. So let's let's strategize here and talk about how we can be sure not to offend them and make them very comfortable about our message and sort of ease them in. That's not how Jesus does it. Now, please understand, there's a lot to read between the lines. Don't go to the supermarket this week, grab the magazine rack, and throw it on the ground. We're not Jesus, and we've got to remember that. This is a unique setting. But the thing that we take from here is you back down to nothing. You back down to no one. With grace, with meekness, with patience and compassion, the authority belongs to Jesus Christ. All people are to submit to His Lordship. And it means that we take this to heart and we put the spotlight not only on those who need Him as Savior, we put the spotlight on our own wickedness. And we say, Jesus is Lord of my heart. He's the one to whom I must give account. You live in a culture that says at every turn you must give account to yourself. You are the ultimate authority. You are the only one that can know where you ought to go. You have to look in the mirror and be comfortable with what you see there. You've got to like you. That is heresy. What we need to do, said Jesus, is love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. There's a natural love we already have for ourselves. We take care of our bodies. We take care of our interests. It comes very naturally. Two commands. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because our salvation and our hope is not centered upon us liking ourselves. It's centered upon Jesus Christ forgiving our sins. And if he has reconciled you to God through his death and through his resurrection, you are on the path to ultimate joy and satisfaction. You can forget the mirror because you can see the face of Christ. That's where joy is. Are you on Jesus' side. Why does he do what he's doing? Who does he think he is? He thinks he's the Lord of the universe because he is. The only question is, are we thinking properly or are we not? That's who he is. May we submit to it willingly. I'd like you to stand with me for sake of time. Let's just sing that chorus. He is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord as we... Close out our service today.